Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing? I am just happily here, just roasting my marshmallows. A few years ago, I got to go camping. Um, I have a love-hate relationship with camping. I first time taking all of my kids and we got there and we got the camper set up with a lot of effort and all of those different things. Um, and then I realized the fundamental flaw of camping. Uh, the fundamental flaw is this, uh, that you, uh, if you take kids with you, they get up super early. And when you take them camping, they get up even earlier. Um, so when my kids got up somewhere around five, um, and we have tested this, by the way, the sprinklers will not go off, we think. Um, my kids get up usually about five, and they got up even earlier. And after we wrestled with uh, like keeping them in there, and when was a respectable time to let them loose in society, we eventually said, well, let's go cook breakfast. Uh, and after we got out of the camper, we started trying to set up all of our different stuff to make that work. And if I'm honest, I had one thought running through my mind. I can't wait to go home. Um, <laughs> cooking is so much simpler when you have a stove and all of those different things, like those wonderful things that we have been given by very intelligent people uh, to enable us to, uh, to, to just make sure that camping is a delight. Would you like a marshmallow? It's all yours. <laughs> to make sure that camping is a delight, I thought, I, I just can't wait to go home. And then as we got breakfast ready, I remember a friend who had come camping with us. He was at the site next to us. I remember him sitting looking at me and he had the strangest expression on his face. And I looked across at him and I said, are you pitying me? And he said, no. I'm envying you. He said, you are in this magical moment. Your kids are running around and you're cooking them breakfast and somehow figuring out a way to make coffee. And I'm sat here with my coffee that was easy to make with my book. And my kids will wake up in a few hours and then they'll want breakfast and then they'll go and I won't see them for the rest of the day. Right now you're in these moments to be treasured. And I thought, wow, that's really profound crazy, but profound. Like it's so much easier when your kids don't want something off you all the time. And then we spent the rest of the weekend around a campfire. We spent it cooking s'mores, cooking marshmallows. We set, spent it with good friends, talking, having great conversation late into the night. And I remember when I get, got back home and I got my couple of days rest at the office as you need after a good camping trip. And I thought this, I can't wait to go back can't wait to go back. And there's something about the smell of campfire that for me will instantly send me back into that space. There's something incredibly interesting about smell in general. These were, when I looked, the top five smells. So see what you resonate with. Freshly baked bread. There are a couple of heroes in the church that have made me freshly baked bread. And if you want to make me some to, so I can compare uh, and I, I can have like a whole chart and everything, we can do that. Just, ju just let me know. But that, that smell is just delightful. You smell it in the oven. It's just developing. Number two is bacon. 
Um, I, I, when I was a youth pastor, I would cook bacon for all of the students once a month and, and, and the smell would waft from the north end of the building to the south end of the building. And just interestingly, some, some parents, especially guys that I'd never seen at any other point, would feel called just to drop in on the youth ministry that day just to see how things were going and see if they could have a good conversation, freshly cut grass. This is one of my favorites. I worked on a golf course and just the aroma of that just in the air. Coffee and necessity in the morning. You know the morning is going well when the coffee is up and running. And then number five was melted chocolate. I lived down the road from a chocolate factory. If I sound like Charlie from Charlie and the Little Chocolate Factory, it's just coincidence. But, but I, I, you could go stand in the parking lot and, and the melted chocolate smell of Cadbury's chocolate would just, just waft into the air. There's something incredible about smells that's, that's actually scientific. Uh, what we're told is this, smell is the most evocative and longest lasting of the senses. There's something about the way something smells that can throw you back into a memory from decades before. How many of you have walked somewhere and said, oh, I just caught a aroma of something and it reminds me of this place or this space or this time. Uh, the writer, Teresa White, says this, the sense of smell conjures up memories so strong that you feel as if you are experiencing the event again. When I smell fire, campfire, I am experiencing some of those wonderful memories of just time around if I enjoying that experience. But here's a question. If that can be true of our good times, our good memories, our good experiences, can it also be true of our worst? Are there ways that smell can conjure up past experiences, past moments in a way that actually is painful? We actually occasionally use language. There, there is, you may have heard the, the language, uh, the stench of failure, the, the stink of failure. The, the great prophet Homer Simpson uh, once said while sitting in a bath after, after a failed project, washing himself, saying the stink of failure is still on me. Now that may seem weird to, to us in our society, but if you go to Japan where honor and shame are, are, are very much important concepts, that idea that failure that shame is, is tangible and transferable is very, very real. This is the last Japanese person who, who was well known to, to, to die by ritual suicide, by sepulchre. He failed in a military operation and the sense of shame was so strong on him that he committed suicide. He died from suicide because of that. We see ways that failure can put us into places that are really negative. And maybe some of you have been in those moments. Maybe some of you have had those experiences where you've said the, the sense of failure, the sense of struggle, the sense of regret is so strong, I'm not sure that I can continue. For this guy, that was a real lived experience. What if something about smell can tap us back, not just into positives, what if it can throw us back into negatives? We're going to look at a guy today called Peter, who I would suggest that has the potential to be true of. In this series, Riptide, we, Riptide we've looked at a few different characters. We've looked at how Jesus has interacted with them post-resurrection. So we've had Mary, who has experienced what it is to live in darkness. She's experienced, we're told in biblical language, she has had seven demons cast out of her. And now Jesus is gone. Does she now go back? What happens? Her story has moved from darkness to light. With Jesus not around, it is the potential that it returns to darkness. 
She needs to know that she won't go back to her old story, this Cleopas, this character that we find walking on the Emmaus Road, leaving the story. He's getting out of town. He can no longer commit to this thing. He has this sense of defeat. And then last week, we looked at good old Thomas, who is somewhat miscounted as a, as a doubter, but has this experience of, I don't know if I can keep believing in Jesus. I don't know if I can sign up for this again. He let me down. He wasn't what I thought he was. God has let me down. I'm not sure I can recommit to this story. Each of them needed Jesus in specific ways. And I would say, interestingly, aren't each of them quite like us in lots of ways? You may not have been in all of those places, but I bet you've probably at some point been in one. I bet you've made a journey at some point from a place that seemed like a dark time in your life to a place that seemed good and and worried that you might go back there. I bet at some point you've had that sense of, is the story worth it? Is the church worth it? It seems at times to be so fractured and broken worldwide. Can I still stay involved in this? And and then how about doubt? Both types of doubt that we talked about last week. The head doubt, the, the, the questions of like, you know, what if? Can God make a rock that he can't destroy or any of those weird things we might ask ourselves? And then the existential doubt, the felt doubt of this is a broken thing. I am broken. This is too painful. I can't sign up for this again. For each of these people, what I would say is that the resurrection was true, but not yet true for them. The resurrection was true, but not yet true for them. And Jesus, in his incredible way, comes alongside each of them and he pulls them back into his story. He gives them new stories to live by. And the same is true of Peter. But let's remind ourselves just a few things about Peter. This is the last story that we know of Peter before Jesus' death and resurrection. So let's just get a sense of where he was. If you don't know Peter's character, a couple of things you need to know about him. Peter is the brash one. Peter is the outspoken one. He always has an opinion on everything. He seems to be the leader of the disciples, sometimes because he was asked to be, but sometimes just because he's Peter and he chose to be. And that's just how Peter works. It tells you most things you need to know about him. So in Mark chapter 14, we're told this. On the way, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me for the scriptures say God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Coming up to his crucifixion, coming up to his arrest, Jesus predicts that the people most loyal to him will no longer show loyalty to him. And Peter right on cue says, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me th- deny three times that you even know me. And it tells us something about how Peter understands Jesus at this point and how Peter sees himself at this point, that his response isn't, Jesus, you're often so wise. If you say so, it must be so. His response is, no, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I, I, I will never deny you. Bold claim, my friend. And then we see the story unpack as Jesus is arrested, we're told. Peter was in the courtyard below. That is the scene that Mark paints. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. A couple of details that the author chooses to pick out. A courtyard and a fire. This is the scene that we are given. There is a fire and Peter is stood at it with a group of people and has this opportunity 
opportunity at Jesus' lowest moment, at the moment everyone else has deserted him to say, oh, I know this man. Yes, I follow him. Yes, I consider him to be all of the things that Peter considers Jesus to be. But his response is different. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed warning number one. I remember being back as an eight-year-old. I remember those moments I lived in an area that very few people followed Jesus. And I remember being questioned, are you a Christian? And remember as an eight-year-old saying yes, but remember as a teenager, that got far harder to own up to. I feel like I've been a little bit where Peter sat and know what it feels like to be in this moment. Round two, when the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. The Galileans, this area had a very distinct sort of accent. Peter swore a curse on me if I'm lying and I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. This is the last time we encountered Peter before Jesus' death and resurrection. And we find him... Don't we find him at his lowest point, at his worst moment? Now, what's interesting as we look for the redemption in this story is Mark, who we're told historically wrote this text, Mark was very close with Peter. So the only reason he knows this story is what? Peter told him. Peter came to this place, he said, Mark, that's got to go in there. You've got to put it in. Me at my lowest, you need to share that because it's going to say something later in the story. But right now, if I had to find a picture to encapsulate how I see Peter and his place within the followers of Jesus, it's probably this one. Peter is in that place of, he's on the fringe. Does he still belong? That moment where a dog shows its remorse, shows the fact that it's done something it shouldn't have done, the guilty expression. Jesus has so far met the disciples twice since his resurrection and Peter has been conspicuous in his silence. Peter, who's always outspoken, Peter, who always has something to say, has said nothing. Thomas has said something. Others have spoken up, but Peter seems like he's sitting on the fringe. And now it's been one day, two days, three days, then eight days, and then more days. And still, there's been no moment where Peter has this come to Jesus moment, this literal come to Jesus moment where he gets to encounter Jesus, perhaps one-on-one in real conversation. Still, he's trapped in this moment that looks like this. I would suggest he sits somewhere between guilt and shame. He has done something wrong, but what does that mean now? Jesus is risen. And yet still there is this deep weight on him. We did a load of work on guilt and shame in our emotion series and and our friend Kevin Butcher spoke about shame and where it comes from in Genesis. And so if you've not heard that, maybe go back and check it out. But right now it's enough to say that shame is this intensely negative emotion that usually comes from how we see other people and their value on us. Shame is a self-conscious emotion generated by self-reflection and self-evaluation when a person's failures or shortcomings are displayed publicly. And it is often accompanied by fear of rejection or abandonment by the group. Doesn't that sound like Peter 
where am I now? What does the story mean for me now? Am I still the leader of this group, like the leader, the spokesperson of the disciples? Am I outside of this group? Is there forgiveness for me? How does Jesus feel about me? So many questions must be swirling in his mind day after day after day as he sits in this place of failure, of brokenness. All of the things he promised, he didn't live up to any of them. And maybe you've sat there, maybe not, it's, maybe not in relationship to Jesus, but, but maybe you've had moments where everything seems like it's gone wrong. I, I definitely have. Maybe there were some things that you said yes to that you should have said no to. Maybe there were things you said no to that you should have said yes to. Maybe there's just something that just sticks out in your mind and it has some association with guilt, but perhaps... Also not, shame is kind of unique in that it doesn't require you to have done anything wrong. It's just an emotion about how you are perceived and how you fit and how you belong. If anything, maybe this is helpful language. Guilt is a wound. Shame is a scar. I was at work years ago. I was working on a golf course and I hit my head on the guy's head next to me. We were in a cart together. It bumped and we clashed heads and it seemed like it was just going to be a minor thing. It bled a little bit, but then it seemed to be fine. And then suddenly in this spot on my head, all of my hair started falling out. Now, some of you guys pull off boldness delightfully well. You look awesome and you're living the dream. You don't have to worry about upkeep or anything. But for those of us with long hair, this is like worst case scenario. Where's it going? Like, I, this is my identity. I, I can't handle this. People would come up to me and they'd say, you've got something in your hair. Oh no, it's just a bold spot. Now, this had never happened to me before in my life. And so I experienced the emotional pain that I'm sure some of you have been through. But I went to the doctor, got a quick operation, and they fixed it. They took out some stuff that you don't need to hear described. It looked disgusting, too much information, but then theoretically problem fixed until it scarred. And then I noticed every time I went out in the sun, there was this intense moment of pain as the sun hit this one particular spot. That's how scars often work. Long after wounds heal, scars are still painful to touch. Long after the guilt has gone, shame says the moment something touches that spot, ouch, I feel it. You know if for you there are certain words that I could use, certain situations, life experiences that I can reference, and the, just the mention of them, it's like, ow, I feel that. Sometimes it's a particular person when they text, when they call, we just don't want to pick up the phone. Sometimes it's a particular building or organization. The scar can remain long afterwards. Guilt is a wound and shame is a scar. And I would suggest somewhere in that tension right now is where Peter sits. What do my actions mean now Jesus is risen? And what story does he have for me now? Which leads us beautifully to John chapter 21. If you have a text and you want to read along with me, you are welcome to do that. I'm going to read through it fairly quickly. We'll go back through it verse by verse, assuming we have time. And man, I need to get moving. If you guys want lunch but I already ate, so I'm not fussed. I mean, we can just keep going. You guys can mail in your Panera orders. We'll back a truck up or something. Chapter 21, after Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I am going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said to him, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing a full net of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even so, with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know how that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Let's pray. God, as we enter into this text from all sorts of places of failure, all sorts of places of struggle, all sorts of places of questioning, we enter this with guilt, with shame, with a need for you to create new stories. And so we come to you who does that for Peter, and ask how you might do that for us. So God, speak as we need to hear you. For those in need of comfort, bring us comfort. For those in need of affliction, of stirring up, would you stir us up? Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable as you do so often. Amen. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. There's some suggestion this chapter feels a little bit tacked on to the end of John. It seems to end very cleanly in John 20. But in actual fact, that's just quite often how Greek texts work. If you read Homer's Iliad, the whole story, the climax happens. And then there's a chapter that just seems to wrap up some character issues. So this is fairly normal to happen in this culture. Simon Peter Thomas, also known as Didymus from last week, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out fishing, Simon Peter told them. When you don't know where your story is going, it's very normal to return to something familiar and fishing is what Peter knows. That means in his culture at some point, he'd been to synagogue school as all boys, he'd started his education and someone had said, the academic life, Peter, is not for you. Go learn a trade, go back to your father, he'll teach you to do what he does, go to your uncle, he'll teach you to do what he does, but you are not made to be an academic, you are not made to be a rabbi. That means that when Jesus comes to Peter and calls him, that's a surprise to everybody. Peter included. He doesn't fit the normal pattern. The others say that they will go out with him and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Interestingly, that word nothing, even though it just kind of gets lost in the text, it is really what the whole passage centers around. The whole passage centers around these followers of Jesus, Peter in, in, in particular, coming to realize they are completely reliant on Jesus. That they can't do this thing by themselves. That Uden is just simply nothing. We caught nothing. We can do nothing. We are reliant on you is the conclusion that slowly that they will come to. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? The literal Greek word is not actually friends. It's actually very endearingly. It's children. It's children. You didn't catch anything, did you? You've been out all night. There were no results. You need this conversation. Come this way. No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. An unusual request. Most of the oar setup was on the right side of a fishing boat. So you would cast your net off the left side. So to cast it off the right, they have to change everything around. It's something that no good fisherman would do. And yet Jesus is asking them to do this and they do it on faith And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And those of you that have been around the texts for a while, around church for a while, might say, ah, this story sounds familiar. Haven't we been here before? And yes, of course we have. The disciples' first encounter, or one of their first encounters, was with this Jesus who tells them to do something unusual, tells them to fish after fishing all night and catching nothing, and a miraculous catch of fish Appears. It is also a moment where Simon Peter, for the first time, realizes something about who Jesus is and has moments where he says, Jesus, don't call me. Pick somebody better. Go away from me. I'm a sinful, broken person. Jesus, I am not the person that you need. I am not called to this. In this moment, there's a trigger that says, oh, We've been here before. This seems like a Jesus-type story. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. For those of you that can track back a couple of weeks, we talked about this weird tension between this author, this disciple that Jesus loved, and, and Peter. There's kind of this weird collegiate competition when Jesus is raised, they both run to the tomb, and, and this disciple is very keen for us to know, I ran faster than Peter, just so you know. I got there first. It's real childlike schoolyard stuff. And now we're starting to see a little bit of it again. The the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. It's like, I recognized him first. Just so you know, Peter was the idiot that jumped in the water, but I was the one that spotted him from the boat. As As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Things that you don't see every day, right? It's just, I'm gonna jump and I'm gonna swim. Our text will say something about he, he took his outer garment, uh, put his outer garment around him, he'd taken it off. The Greek text just says he was naked because they worked naked and he didn't want to appear that way in front of Jesus. So he throws his clothes on, risks drowning and swims the hundred yards they have to swim to get to the boat. And everyone else followed in the usual fashion. I just wonder with Peter, he has this walking on water story. I'm just wondering, has he he got some concept of, I can still do this. Jesus is back around. It seems an odd decision to make. But what I would suggest psychologically is this. For this character, he will do anything for just a few moments one-on-one with Jesus. Every other counter has had these moments of interaction with many other people there. And for Peter, it's, I just need to get him alone. 
if I could get him alone, I'd know where I stood. If I can get him alone, I'd know what my story is, whether I'm still included, whether I'm still involved. It's a longing for just give me a couple of moments. And when they get to shore, we're told, when they landed, they saw a fire. A few days after standing by a fire and denying Jesus three times, Peter is now stood again by a fire and again with Jesus. There is a fire to remind Peter of his failure. If smell is evocative, if smell does something, Peter now stands there and is reminded of everything that happened, everything that transpired that night. He had an opportunity to stand up for Jesus and he didn't. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter, again being Simon, clambered back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, a notable feat of strength to do that by yourself. He's kind of showing off. He's showing that he's the, he's the physical dominating disciple that Jesus needs in this hour. It was full of large fish, 153. That's a really weird number, really random number. There's some suggestion that that might've been the number of species that were known at this time. And so they threw it in to say, Jesus knows all the fish, but that would be a very strange thing to write. I grant you, it doesn't seem particularly likely. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. The, 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 the juxtaposition of a fire a few days before and a fire now, the, the kind of the way that it connects is impossible to miss in the text. Peter has stood by a fire and he's denied Jesus. And now he stands by another fire, experiencing Jesus one-on-one -on -one for the first time. Somewhere the stories are the same. There's the place of denial and now a reminder of that denial. But in this one beautiful way, the stories are different. Yes, there is a fire. Yes, there is all the history of failure. But at this fire, there is breakfast. There is a fire, but there is also breakfast. And I would suggest there is a fire, but there is also breakfast because Jesus is bringing a new day. Have you ever had that experience of, I just need this day to end? And I need there to be a new day. And have you ever imagined what it would be like if there was no new day? We constantly lived in the same day with all of our failures of this present day. They're in this same day forever. Somewhere in this story, there is an encounter where Peter meets Jesus by a fire, but Jesus brings breakfast. It takes all of the, the connection of fire. I wonder whether Peter would have stood by every fire for the rest of his life and remembered this moment he had an opportunity to stand up for Jesus and he didn't, had an opportunity to live up to what he said and he didn't. And now he gets for the rest of his life to remember the day that he stood by a fire and Jesus made him breakfast because Jesus excels at bringing new stories out of old stories. In this moment, we see what redemption is. We see what it is to take a smell that might bring all of the memories, the stench of failure. And in this moment, that now means something different all together. In this moment, Peter is going to learn just how Jesus sees him and how he can take his place in the story. But in this moment, what, what does Peter still need? Does he need forgiveness? If that is your answer, I would say maybe yes. But I would suggest, and we'll nudge towards this later, I would suggest the forgiveness is already granted. Does he need repentance? 
this turning around, I would suggest maybe that's already happened, that that's why Peter is stood where he is now. What in this moment does he need from Jesus for this story not to remain as a story of failure, a story where he stood by a fire and he let Jesus down? I would suggest in this moment, Peter needs something that every single one of you and I need in our moments of brokenness and failure. I would suggest when he needs is confession. And when I say confession, maybe you practice as a Catholic or maybe that's in your background. For some of you, it may be something that you still do. You go and you do the confession box. That's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is specifically what the Greek word confession means. And let's just unpack this a little bit and, and, and try and pull it out of this text. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? This writer, John, excels. He is brilliant at taking crowds and bringing it down to just two people where everybody else seems to disappear from the picture. And it's just Jesus and one other person. Go back and read all through John and see the number of times that this happens. It's delightful writing. Do you, do you love me more than these is his question. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? In this moment, every reaction of Peter floods back to the story of just a few days ago, back to his three failures, the three times that he denied Jesus. In Luke's version, we read Mark's earlier, in Luke's version, there's this poignant line, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. This heartbreaking reaction of Peter as he goes outside and he weeps bitterly, this intense encounter of what it is to let someone down and have them look at you directly. And now, once again, they're stood across a fire and Jesus is looking at Peter and he asks him three times this question. And the synergy, the connection between the three times he denied Jesus is just, again, too clear to miss. And Peter has a choice Does he go back to old Peter practice? Does he find a way to defend himself? Does he find a way to explain why he did what he did? All of those different things. Does he find a way to to demonstrate or try and prove his love for Jesus, his connection, his devotion to Jesus? In this moment, he doesn't. In this moment, Peter lands exactly where I think you and I should land in our moments of question, in our moments where we encounter failure, in our moments where we're not all that we want to be, in our moments where we feel like our story has turned into the worst version of itself. In this moment, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. You know all things. Jesus, you see me. See me with all my fears. Fear, see me in all the ways that my story is broken. See me in all the ways that I would like to trust you and don't. See me in all the ways that I've broken relationships, that I've hurt other people. See me in all the ways I've been hurt by other people. See me in all the hopes that I had for what my life would look like and the ways that it hasn't turned out the way that I wanted. See me in my parenting and my questioning of whether I even know how to do this. See me in my marriage and watch us struggle. See me in every situation. See me in my questions. You see me. You know all things. 
you know, the ways that I want to love you and fail. The ways that I hope to be all that you would want me to be and I'm not. You see me. You know all things. You know that to the best of my ability, I love you. You know the ways that I need help to do that. You see me. In this moment, Peter, who stood by a fire and three times denied Jesus, is asked by Jesus a question three times. And at the end of it, comes to the end of himself, comes to that moment of nothing. I caught nothing and Jesus, without you, I am nothing. And I need you to be everything because I can't do this by myself. The word confess, homologomen, it is simply that idea of to say the same as, to just agree, to come to that point. And I would suggest like you and I, so often Peter needs this moment of confession. Say, I don't have a defense for the story. I don't have an answer for a new story, but I need you to be that for me, Jesus. The writer Nadia Boltz Weber says this, confession is a car wash for our secrets. It's this experience of what it is to speak out, to say the same, and to come out, not just being clean, but being aware that we are clean. And what is fascinating to me in this moment, the tension between characters in this moment, I would suggest, is no longer between John or the beloved disciple and Peter. It's between Judas and Peter. It's between Judas and Peter. Judas, the famous betrayer, the famous, the, the ultimate letdown as a disciple. During Jesus' questioning of them, before, during his statement that every one of them would deny him, Judas has responded in a way very similar to Peter, and in, in many ways they are very similar characters. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. In this moment, I don't know, I don't have an answer as to whether Judas genuinely convinces himself that he won't go through with his plan or whether he's just simply lying, but somewhere in this moment, his response to Jesus' suggestion is, surely you don't mean me. And when Jesus dies, he makes this plea on behalf of everybody that has failed him. And I would suggest every single one of us sitting here with all of our brokenness and all of our stories, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. As a response to that, Peter says, I agree. I say the same. Yes, I need that. And I long for that. And I receive that. Judas says, surely you don't mean me. Surely it's not my story. Judas makes the ultimate decision. He goes the wrong direction. But Peter, Peter, he receives it. Jesus prays, forgive them. Peter responds, I agree. Judas claims, surely you don't need me. me. Now, now there's all this theological conversation we could have about election and does Judas have a choice in this matter? And really, as it comes down to it, it doesn't actually matter why he has to make this choice or whether he has to make this choice, but this is the choice he makes. He can't agree to that for whatever reason. And I would suggest for each one of us in our moments of shame, in our moments of regret, of guilt, in our moments where we feel outside of the story, the choice we're given is to confess and agree, to say, I need someone to pull me back into the story. Without you, I have nothing. Without you, I caught nothing. I need you to pull me back in. And Jesus, in his beautiful way, as he is, does for each of those first followers, longs to pull us back into this story. Is your answer, I agree? 
or is it you don't mean me? Some questions for you to reflect on. Where do you experience guilt or shame? How have you understood confession? How has that changed? What might it take for you to believe this Jesus who says he knows your story and longs to pull you into his story and awaits your agreement? Jesus, as we sing, as you enter into this room in a particular way, as you by your spirit come alongside each of us, would you speak to us? Maybe through tears, maybe through doubt, maybe through anger. You know all of our stories, the ones that are fair and the ones that aren't fair. Know the ways that we feel shame because of something we've done and the ways that we feel shame because of what's been done to us. Know the ways that we are broken and have been broken. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.